Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like? They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window, and on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, it is the dead of winter in Michigan right now as we're recording, and yet here I am, comfortable in my office, talking to my guest through my computer. And this just shows that it's easy to take cheap, reliable energy for granted. And it seems that some of our policymakers uh, take this for granted, too. And today I'm talking with Jason Hayes, my colleague and director of environmental policy here at the Mackinac Center, about some of the basics of energy policy and what is politically possible in this policy sphere. Jason, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Now, I think most people around the country expect the lights to turn on when they flip their light switch. Uh, yet, there is a complicated system that delivers energy to each household, and behind that system, there is also a, complica a complicated regulatory framework managed by state governments. Uh, can you explain those different regulatory structures? Yeah, there's there's a multi-layered approach to all of this. So you you touched on some of it. The state legislature le legislature plays a role. Um, doing things like passing the legislation that establishes other boards that that handle um, electricity regulation in the state. And so the governor plays a role by appointing different political appointees. And in the case of electricity, the appointees that she puts in place uh, are things like the commissioners for the Michigan Public Service Commission. So that is a state-based regulatory agency that is put in place to, quote from their website, to ensure safe, reliable, and accessible energy and telecommunication services at reasonable rates. So that's one layer uh, on top of the legislature. Then there's another layer that operates at kind of the regional level. It's called the MISO or the Mid-Continent independent system operator and what it does is it's a independent like it says in the name not for not for profit board member based organization that's responsible for doing things like setting electricity prices and managing the flow of electricity and so in michigan's case miso is responsible for 15 U.S. states and the Canadian province of Manitoba. And so it's their job to make sure that the electricity system works in that area. Then there are other levels. The federal government manages through different uh, legislation that they put in place and different uh, federal government agencies like the EPA controls emissions that come from electricity. Um, Department of Energy controls or looks at different styles of energy that can be used. Then they have as one final layer is the North American Regulatory Commission is uh, an international body that also oversees electricity reliable, reliability through Canada, the United States, and then the northern portion of Baja, California. So it's an international group that sees a wide range of different grids. So it's a pretty complex system. There's a lot of different layers that are all involved in regulating or overseeing, setting prices and that sort of thing. But 
and up to a certain point uh, it has worked well over the past several decades but like I said it's complex and there's a lot going on there so I mean it's uh, there's a lot of governments a lot of nonprofits a lot of for-profits involved in the production and regulation of electricity so that uh, when you turn the light switch it goes on and my understanding of that is that the the reason that there are so many government policies involved is that uh, policymakers were worried that this was a was going to be a monopoly that is it's really expensive to run one of these systems you're not going to have competition and therefore um, in lieu of competitive pressures to produce and distribute electricity um, uh, there needs to be a government there to ensure that uh, uh, ensure cheap and reliable electricity. Um, is is that still the case today? Yes, especially in uh, Michigan where we're located, the system is kind of a, a strange hybrid of free market pressure and monopoly utilities. So for the vast majority of people or businesses or industries that exist and operate in the state, they have a monopoly electricity system structure. So there are single monopoly utilities. In our case, Consumers Energy supplies our electricity. Uh, in the Detroit area, DTE supplies their electricity. And those utilities also supply natural gas, but here we're speaking about electricity. And so they um, are responsible for both generation of electricity and distribution of electricity. And so the, the intermediate step between those two is transmission, and that's run by a separate monopoly organization, which in the, the lower peninsula is ITC. And so it's still all very heavily regulated. It's run by single companies that have a protected uh, operating base or a customer base. And so they're, the, like you said, groups like the state legislature and the Michigan Public Service Commission oversee the operation of these services and do what uh, you, you alluded to. They're there and their ostensible goal is to protect the consumer because everybody knows that in a monopoly situation, sometimes pricing can get screw, skewed, sorry. Um, and so the government's role in this and the Public Service Commission specifically is to set prices and to determine whether what the utilities are charging is fair to customers. And so that's the current system we operate under. Monopoly utilities that nobody is allowed to compete with but then are overseen and the prices are approved by the government, the state government. So that's what, we, we, what we've got, which is we've got um, some big utilities. And by the way, it's not just consumers and DT. There are some municipal uh, electricity providers that are out there right. and, and some smaller ones too. But um, they, uh, they built the plants, they've got distribution, they've got transmission, and we're afraid that, uh, that if we just left them without regulation, they're going to charge consumers a lot more because they've got no choice but to use, uh, but to use uh, right. these utility providers. And it would be expensive to create competition uh, for them. Uh, and therefore, we've got this public service commission apparatus, um, and, and, and the companies basically have to go to them and say... Here's what we want to charge consumers. We, or uh, uh, here's what how we want to set prices. Uh, is uh, is this acceptable to you? They have a negotiation. They set uh, they set their prices. 
Um, yes. Now, that's how we do it in Michigan, but aren't there different ways of doing that? Yeah, so the the best example that exists or the, the, the closest to a free market system that exists in the country is probably Texas, which is overseen by ERCOT, which is a different regional entity. And ERCOT basically operates pretty much only in the state of Texas. So Texas's electricity prices are set by a competition on prices and effectively they're set to go with the lowest price option kind of wins in that regard. And so that has worked, but there are some issues associated with it because like I talked about the multi-layered aspect of regulatory bodies and oversight uh, has caused problems with some of those pricing mechanisms. Chiefly among those problems is the federal government comes in and heavily subsidized politically preferable sources of electricity. So in this, in our situation, what we're seeing is that renewable energy sources like wind and solar receive very generous subsidies from the federal government. And because of those subsidies, they're able to price their product quite a bit below the production costs of other more reliable sources like fossil fuels and nuclear. And so those systems, especially in a system like Texas, those sources are able to undercut the prices, which makes it difficult to keep operating the other sources. And so what you're seeing is over time, uh, a degrading or an inability to keep these more reliable sources open, the fossil fuels, the, the nuclear, which are often called baseload or dispatchable sources, the ones that when you, like at the, in your opening, you said when you flick the switch, you expect the light to come on. They're the ones that are able to do that. And we're going more in the direction of weather-dependent electric services because of the pricing mechanisms that have been skewed by federal government um, imposition into these markets. So it's causing problems because those renewable sources don't get charged for the inefficiencies or the intermittency that they put into the system because the wind doesn't blow 24-7 and the sun does not shine 24-7. They are not being, in effect, penalized for their inability to be dispatchable. So you can, you can no longer, if you rely heavily on renewable energy, you can no longer just come to your light switch and flick it on and expect the lights to come on. Because if the sun's not shining and you're relying on solar, well, you don't get to have electricity. If the wind's not blowing, same thing. You don't get to have electricity. So we're causing problems in the overall system or grid stability with this kind of intrusion into price and uh, price setting mechanisms. Yeah, and then grid stability is an issue regardless of whether it's that regulated uh, regulated rate setting framework or if it's a competitive framework, as, as you mentioned. But the... Correct. I mean, we've talked about this as like, here's just the rules. The rules are a little different in, in different places, but um, there are people trying to change the rules uh, in addition. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in a regulatory framework, you've got um, 
the producers trying to get the best uh, the best deal for their investors. You've got uh, uh, consumers, you know, residences and households, and especially major manufacturers who are big. Uh, electricity users trying to ensure that 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 rates are low. You've got environmentalists trying to say you guys should build more wind and solar and and, and things that don't produce greenhouse gases. Uh, you've got all sorts of different interest groups, and they're not just fighting within the regulatory framework process itself, but trying to change the law surrounding um, uh, uh, the law surrounding uh, this. So, what are you seeing uh, right now? Is like where. Uh, energy policy is going, what are the debates that are going on, who wants what? Right. One of the biggest debates that's going on in energy policy right now would be the the issue of climate change and the the resulting policy to decarbonize the grid as a, as a way to control the impacts or to lessen the impacts, potential impacts of climate change. And so that gets back into the the policies and the subsidies that I spoke about earlier because the attempt to decarbonize the grid and the attempt to address climate change has pushed us to do things like um, prioritize or heavily subsidize the construction of wind and solar. Okay, so that big overarching goal to decarbonize is at the same time causing issues with like I said, stability in the grid because it's difficult for companies that operate uh, a clean source like nuclear to keep the the overall overhead costs that are associated with a, a system or a type of electricity that's very expensive to build but very cheap to run. So trying to to keep a nuclear plant open is difficult. And we saw a real life example of that in Michigan with the Palisades nuclear plant, where the company that was running it and Consumers Energy, which was purchasing the electricity from that, that uh, plant, had decided a few years back that because of the, the ability of renewable sources like wind and solar to price below the, the cost of production, it's actually a term in the industry called negative pricing. Um, it makes it too expensive to keep the nuclear plants running. So they close down a nuclear plant, but then again, like I said before, you're not pricing for reliability. You're pricing for the low price and when you're starting to get to a situation where this wasn't really a big deal when wind and solar only made up one or two percent of our overall fuel mix. But as we're getting higher in percentages, we're now in Michigan, for example, we have a renewable portfolio standard, which mandates that the state gets 15 percent or more of its electricity from wind and solar or renewable well, sources. Let's get back on. That. I mean, this is this is one of the the uh, one of your themes that uh, that you've worked on, which is like as we're trying to pr- produce this uh, this thing of decarbonizing the electricity grid, it's causing all sorts of different unintended consequences, which threatens uh, pricing, reliability, and um, uh, and and our basic ability to get to get what we want. So, outside of mm-hmm. decarbonizing, what else is going on in energy policy? Um, well, that's that's the the really the 800 pound gorilla in the system right now is how do we safely and reliably continue to provide electricity 
that everybody needs, whether it's to keep their home warm or to run their business or to manufacture goods. How do we do that safely and reliably? And then at the same time, manage the system so that it's affordable. And decarbonization has really thrown a wrench into the, the whole, the gears of how this system works because it's, again, too expensive to run baseload plants. But the reason that renewables are so cheap is because of the subsidies. So when you allow those disruptions in market sources or market pricing mechanisms to take over, then it does cause major problems. So those are the, really, that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. And while, you know, there are other things like, should we use nuclear? Should we use coal? Should we use natural gas? Um, those, those are always discussions that are going on. Um, the big one is decarbonization, but then throw something else on the next big thing that's coming down the, the, the pike is, uh, the issue of things like electric vehicles. So, You'll hear a lot in discussions about uh, transportation or energy use that what we want to do is transition, again, because of decarbonization, away from internal combustion engine vehicles to battery electric vehicles. Okay, well, that sort of transition is going to put increasing pressure on an already strained electric, electric grid, which we talked about earlier we're having trouble keeping the grid reliable. So now we're going to increase our electric use by, you know, 30%, 40% to be charging uh, vehicles for transportation. So there's a lot of these changes that are involved with this transition that are really impacting whether or not we're going to be able to continue supplying reliable, affordable electricity. Mm -hmm. So on this issue, we've got, um, or on both both of these things, like there is a um, a carbon free future that we could uh, could we could have if we build enough windmills and solar plants, and then find some way to address the dispatchability issues, and 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 uh, and then power electric vehicles with uh, with those renewable or renewable resources. And mm -hmm. right now, you're you're trying to say that we we're not there yet. Windmills are Correct. too expensive. They're subsidized, which are throwing things off. And this uh, plowing in, into this direction is going to cause a lot of unintended consequences, including being able to question the basic thing that we want from our elect electricity providers, which is to make sure that the lights turn on uh, when we flip our switch. Right. All right. So I, I guess between we've got to or we're going to we're going to phase out all um coal plants and nuclear plants tomorrow and replace them with wind and solar and continuing on and, and not doubling down on, 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 on wind and solar. Where is the Overton window on this issue? Um, where are the bounds? Because it seems like neither of the extremes are happening. Right. So um, kind of in the, the discussion of, of what you were going, the, you know, what is politically possible Right now, that decarbonization theme has is playing a major role. <clears throat> so not only with utilities, but with big business. And you see uh, investment companies like BlackRock and others like that are driving a lot of the investments that are associated with this sort of thing. But increasingly, 
we're starting to see some of the impacts of this decarbonization push. And so we've written quite a bit about this on the, the Mackinac Center's blog, looking at the issue of reliability. And so we had just a few weeks ago, well, actually it was last week, a week and a half ago in Austin, Texas, they were starting to have electricity reliability concerns because they had extremely cold weather and, you know, freezing rain and that sort of thing. And the the wind turbines did not produce the way that they expected them to. And so they're they're seeing that unreliable reliability come in. So that happened in Texas last week. Uh, over the Christmas break, we saw the same thing across much of the East Coast. There was issues during an extreme cold snap related to, are we able to keep the lights on? We saw the same thing every summer now in California. We're seeing this problem that California has, and the utilities have to send out things called conservation notices or conservation measures, where uh, the utilities and the <clears throat> independent system operators, which in California is California's independent system operator, <clears throat> you're seeing them sending out warnings that are saying, look, we don't have sufficient electricity being produced right now. So we need users, ratepayers, the average person on the street to cut back their electricity. Saw the same thing in February 2021 in Texas during Winter Storm Uri, the big blackouts that struck the, but, the state. By the way, can, can I stop you there? Because I think that's the, that's a thing I want to dwell on, which is like our current policy, what is politically possible is like we want to head to this renewable energy future. We've already spent a lot of money um, and in part at the public expense building more wind turbines or turbines and um, and and uh, and uh, solar farms, and in this process, we th they, our utilities thought that they could do this seamlessly, and it mm -hmm. turns out that there are some problems, as in they they moved either too quickly or or their ability to adjust. I think because that's in the background for a lot of these wind and solar things is that utilities uh, utilities and regulators know that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so the way to deal with that is that you you uh, double down on dispatchable sources, in particular things that can ramp up and down very quickly. And and I guess that that is mostly natural gas, as, as I understand it. And and it's one right. of the reasons why nuclear plants aren't as aren't as attractive uh, in this renewable future is that you can't just turn them off and on like you can these these gas plants. And so like that's that's where we are, is in the the political desire to decarbonize is. Has, has meant that there's war more winded solar and right. regulators thought they could do this. But it seems the counterweight to this is that expectation is and people still really want the lights to turn on when they right. flip their switch. And like everything else just seems to be like this negotiation under those two desires. Is that yes. accurate? Yeah. And this spot right here is where the Overton window fits perfectly to explain what's happening because you saw the Overton window shift for a little bit to say, well, climate change is our biggest problem and we have to address climate change. And that was the, the whole drive behind decarbonization. And so you saw this shift of the Overton window to say, what are we going to do? Because it's an, in quotes, existential threat. And so they were doing this. It's 
even if we have to shut down reliable generation, dealing with climate change is so important that this is what we're going to do. And then when the impacts of that shift in the Overton window start to become real, people around the nation and actually around the world kind of go, whoa, hang on. No, <laughs> this is now becoming dangerous. And suddenly the Overton window shifts again. And so issues like, okay, nuclear is expensive to, to build, very cheap to run, but it's absolutely reliable and our safest form of electricity generation that we have. So, okay, now there's more and more you're seeing people going, okay, well, maybe nuclear is how we do this because it still addresses people's concerns, although it's not my concern. I recognize that people are concerned about climate change. So nuclear fits all of those, like it, it ticks every one of the boxes off in the list. It's completely reliable. It's affordable once it's built to run. Okay, so we're, we're meeting that goal. It uh, has no emissions associated with it, so our CO2 issue is dealt with. And so you're seeing a very real life application of the Overton window where people go, okay, well, we're going to do this. Oh, well, that's not working. Okay, we're going to try this. And the difference is, well, a lot of the time policy, you can do this sort of thing and you might see the impacts happen much more immediately. Uh, we live in that social media world where, you know, the media cycle happens and it's all on 24 hour cycles. One of the key aspects of electricity and energy production is that when you build something, you're dealing with decades. If you put a nuclear plant on the ground, its operating license goes for 60 to 100 years. So you're not making a short-term decision and it takes time to move, like to the old, the old saying about, you know, the, the rudder on a big ship. It takes time to turn a massive ship like that around or to make corrections in the course. And that's what we're seeing here. These corrections in course or course changes happen over a period of years or even decades. And so it's slow to shift, but you're seeing a very real world application of the Overton window here. Yeah. All right. So that's that's a really interesting uh, point to, to dwell on a little bit more on this, which is on, on the one hand, you've got um, like keep keep the incumbent uh, utility generation as as it exists because it provides um cheap and reliable energy, and that is popular. And then we had a shift in popular opinion where um, uh, decarbonizing is very popular. It's very popular with some people within the, some, of the, uh, uh, some of the major interest groups within the industry. But I, I grant that, like, yeah, uh, a lot of people are concerned uh, about uh, electricity generation that, uh, that, uh, that emits carbon dioxide. And so that's been a major shift, uh, or major change uh, that has set the bounds of the Overton window. And on, in, in that one of, like, the drive for carbon-free energy sources – We've spent so much time on wind and solar that this other source, um, uh, nuclear, has, has, uh, which also does uh, or, or uh, does that decarbonation, might be politically popular. But we haven't, as my understanding is, we have not built a nuclear plant in a very, very, very long time. 
Are you saying yep. that that's something that, that you think is within the Overton window now? I mean, it wasn't within the Overton window for fears of, of, of nuclear fallout, major, major unintended consequences. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that is also a, a, a part of the Overton window is that people were afraid of nuclear energy. So do you right. think that's shifted too? Yeah, I think more and more as people are facing real life shortages, again, we'll bring up Texas in February 2021. Depending on which expert you cite, somewhere between 210 and over 700 people died in during winter storm Uri in the state of Texas. Okay, even on the low end, that's like 200 people. That's one of those things that you look at and you go, that's totally unacceptable. There's no reason that we should have an entire state go dark because we don't have reliable electricity. And they actually came within minutes of having a much larger system failure where they would have had to like basically go back to square one and restart the entire system and it would have taken weeks to do instead of just turning things back on. So when people are faced with that kind of, they get a, a real taste of how close to uh, you know, kind of, we we all watch those scary dystopian uh, movies on, on TV or, uh, you know, HBO or whatever. Um, <clears throat> we came close to that kind of situation in Texas in February 21, where it would have been weeks or even a month or more without reliable electricity across the entire state. Okay, that kind of thing, most of us look at it and go, that shouldn't happen in the United States in 2022 or 2023. That's that's the kind of thing that happens not in a developed nation, but somewhere, you know, on in a developing country where they don't have the ability to provide that sort of electricity. You don't expect to see that here in the US. So when uh, there was one uh, fellow, I believe well, it's... Let me- but go so ahead. This, yeah. Again, dwelling upon like uh, unintended consequences of the drive for carbon emission. So we've we've kind of laid laid out uh, the forces on the Overton window. I really think, uh, as as you note, like that desire that we have that it's really popular for the lights to turn on when we flip our switch. I think that's mm-hmm. an important thing. Um, it's going to, going to mandate. So where do you want uh, in this debate for decarbonization? Where do you want policy to head? Uh, I think it's far more important for all of the various levels of government and oversight and regulatory bodies and that to begin focusing on reliability instead of renewable or something like that. So uh, in discussions I've had with other people in think tanks and that, I've said we should get rid of renewable portfolio standards, this idea that you have to have a minimum percentage of your electricity come from wind and solar or renewable sources and focus our, if we're going to have a portfolio standard, it should be on reliability. So instead of a renewable RPS, your RPS should be a reliable portfolio standard. And in some cases, while a lot of the time it's difficult for people to look at that, some cases that may actually mean your electricity is a little bit more expensive, but just the same as you pay for insurance on your car, like you, you make that expense and you're willing to say, okay, well, in case in my home or my car, I have an accident. Well, then I've, I've prepared for that. 
Okay, in the same way, our electricity system, we should be, you know, putting a little bit into insurance. Like we want to value reliability. And so when we are faced with a system or a situation like a polar vortex or a winter storm URI, we have in our back pocket, figuratively speaking, the ability to just fire up another reliable form of generation, whether it's fossil fuels or nuclear or something like that. We have that reserve margin, which is the, the industry term, uh, and we're able to rely on it because we know that when we push the button and that that uh, turbine or that reactor or that that boiler fires up, we know it's going to work because we have fuel stored on site, whether it's coal or gas or, or nuclear fuel. We know it's going to work. We're not just looking out and going, man, I sure hope the wind's blowing or I sure hope the sun is shining uh, because weather dependent sources of electricity are not the kind of thing that we can just say, yeah, we know they're going to work because you don't. You don't know that Mother Nature is going to push a gust of wind into your wind turbine so that when it's negative 20, you can turn on the switch or you can go to your thermostat and you can say, okay, well, I want my house at 70 degrees. You don't know that when you're relying on wind and solar. You do know that when you're relying on nuclear. So that's where I think the system should go is toward reliability. What are you doing about this? Well, we're doing a, a mix of things. Uh, last year, for example, we uh, got involved in uh, public service commission intervention. We intervened in a hearing for Consumers Energy's Integrated Resource Plan, which is a 20-year plan that the utility puts together. They're required by law to say, here is our long-term goal for meeting electricity demand in our area of operation. And so the Mackinac Center intervened and took part in that hearing and said, basically, we don't think their plan is going to provide sufficient uh, reliability. So we disagreed with their plans to close down their last remaining large coal plant 15 years early because they were targeting a 2040 closure and now they're going to close it in 2025. And we said that they should retain other things like um, they're called peaking plants. They're the plants that are sitting in reserve and waiting. If there's a, a large jump in demand, then they can fire up these existing plants, typically older plants, uh, and they can supply electricity using those. Now, the utility said they should just close those down and they should retain a few natural gas plants, but primarily their big goal was to build eight gigawatts of solar so that they're just planning to build a lot of solar a little bit more wind and then a little bit of battery backup and so we argued that that was not sufficient um, unfortunately our view did not prevail in that hearing so we're continuing to do other things like this podcast uh talking on um other news outlets writing op-eds going and talking to other uh, state regulators, uh, state legislators, doing all those things, and then basically trying to educate the public about what are the potential impacts associated with these planned transitions or changes. So we're doing a mix of things. Our standard uh, traditional view of you know publishing the the papers and the reports to explain the problems with it, 
activity in the media and then doing other things like the MPSC hearings. And I think the theory around this is that, look, if we make reliability uh, a more desirable political outcome, we're going to ensure that uh, that uh, our regulators insist upon re- uh, reliability. Um, and that I hope that that works, because if we're successful in this, we get reliable energy and we don't have that thing that you have in those other places where the drive towards decarbonization has decreased reliability to the extent that uh, that that major problems happen. And that will shift the window uh, on this issue faster than anything. And I hope we never find out. Yes, exactly. We like reliable electricity not only because it keeps people safe, but it's also in terms of keeping the state effective and competitive. If you're going to attract businesses to Michigan, they want reliable, affordable energy. So to keep Michigan competitive, to keep the people in the state safe, to keep the state affordable and really a welcoming place for people to come and settle, yes, this is absolutely essential. Jason, good luck in your attempts to shift the Overton window. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.